Garbage in, garbage out. That's how comedian George Carlin once described American politics, arguing, maybe sincerely, maybe facetiously, who knows, that politicians don't fall from the sky, but are the products of American society, selected by American voters. I suppose this is a version of people get the government they deserve, but Carlin would then go in another direction, making it a speech about not voting at all. The bit ends with him saying that voting is essentially the same thing as masturbating. The only difference, he'd tell the audience, is that when I get finished masturbating, I'm gonna have a little something to show for it, folks. Carlin's routine is about the futility of voting, a sensation that I think most people have experienced at some point in life. That goes double for elections in Russia, which is a phenomenon that many foreigners are surprised to learn even exists in the Putin regime. I just use the word elections, but voting is perhaps the better, more honest term here. As I speak, regional voting is underway in areas across Russia, in addition to four occupied regions of Ukraine that Russia annexed a year ago. So let's talk about this weekend's Russian elections and about election monitoring and try to figure out if they're any more meaningful than George Carlin at home, all alone on a Tuesday. Welcome to the Naked Pravda. Howdy folks, welcome to The Naked Pravda. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On this week's episode of the podcast, we'll tackle Russia's 2023 regional elections, which will mostly occur on Sunday, September 10th, though it's a three-day affair in many regions, and voting actually began on Friday, September 8th, which is when I'm recording these words. We're talking 26 gubernatorial elections, 20 regional parliamentary contests, and a whole mess of municipal and local races. Occupying forces in four regions of Ukraine are staging votes, too. But what does any of this mean? If you're new to the very concept of elections or voting in Russia, what should you make of this weekend? That is a question I put to Andras Totsifra, a fellow with the Eurasia program of the Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia. For just somebody who's tuning in to this episode because they saw a headline and realize that Russia is having elections right now and has elections at all, what, what would you want them to take away if they had like just a few minutes to pay attention to this, the big the sort of like elevator speech for what's happening this weekend in terms of these elections? So what I would tell anyone who is not intimately familiar with uh, elections in Russia is that if you regard elections as we should be regarding elections, honestly, in a democracy, which is uh, people freely choosing their representatives who then design and implement various policies, then you can hardly call these elections for two reasons. First of all, a relentless centralization of powers uh, to the federal center from the regions, which makes it uh, very difficult to, uh, to design and implement policies in the regions that are independent from uh, the Kremlin's will, but also because of the of the growing repression that uh, Russia's domestic politics has experienced over the past, I would say, two and a half years, but perhaps especially since the beginning of the full-scale invasion. However, if you regard elections as means of political signaling in both directions, really, from voters to government, from government to voters and elites, then these elections are important and are interesting to look at because they reflect the risks that the Kremlin faces domestically after uh, one and a half year of uh, full-scale war against Ukraine. In terms of like all the elections included from the Russian Far East to the occupied regions of Ukraine, is there kind of like a, a single approach to the voting process or is it like wildly different? 
regions have vastly different political traditions. The openness of the politics is different across the country. There, You will have regions in Russia where elections are freer, much freer than in others, where campaigning is more open, it's a more pluralistic politics is taking place. But I could also mention regions, some regions in the northwest of Russia, where politics has been in the past, even in the past years, more pluralistic than, say, in North Caucasian republics, which uh, are called electoral sultanates in Russian political parlance for a reason. It's because they always turn out, well, close or over 80% turnout and votes for United Russia, which is down to the uh, the, the very specific uh, way politics is conducted in these uh, uh, republics, down to their political history, how local autocracies were built in these regions earlier than autocracy as we know it today was built in Russia as a whole. And then there are, you will have regions where that, that are in between, that are not particularly pluralistic by Russian standards, but uh, I wouldn't classify them as uh, completely closed either. So specifically, these elections that we uh, that are taking place this week, we we see more sort of uh, problematic from the point of view of the authorities regions than in last year's elections. So that's one circumstance that makes the elections more interesting to watch. And then to say something about the elections in the occupied territories, of course, that's a a completely different category, I would say, because first of all, observers have very little, if any, access to them. And uh, it is very difficult to verify how voting will take place. We'll have to rely on, you know, certain reports, eyewitness reports that are going to be published in social media or in, in some independent media outlets that get these reports. They are held under war conditions, which uh, was not even possible under Russian law until a an, until amendment to electoral legislation earlier this year, and which uh, you know, is odd still that these elections are even taking place, given that in two border districts of the Belgorod region in Russia that have experienced shelling, the elections are going to be postponed because of the dangers that uh, these border districts ostensibly face. So, so they're so- suspending elections in border territories, but they're holding them in occupied territories? That is correct. I mean, there is suspending suspending re, uh, elections in those two districts, not, right. not all border territories, but yes. I think this tells you that the purpose of these elections is pretty much the same as the, the, the so-called referenda that were organized in the same territories last year, which themselves were were held to underline that in spite of a Ukrainian counteroffensive, which if you remember then was going on and was uh, fairly successful, successful, these regions were very firmly under Russia's control and Russia could carry out its will uh, in these regions. And I, I see the elections that are happening, uh, that are going to be held or the votes that are going to be held, however you want to call them, in these four occupied territories this week as uh, a similar show of force that um, is meant to show to Ukraine and to the world that Russia is controlling these territories and is able to to carry out its will and is uh, willing to integrate them into Russia. But of course, it doesn't mean that there are no candidates. There are various uh, Russian parties that all uh, supported various candidates, some of whom are local officials, some of whom are local sort of citizens fulfilling various roles. But I- I'm not even saying that we should take the results with a pinch of salt. I think these results are not going to be indicative of anything that happened out on the ground. They are uh, very likely to be, they're, they're going to be very difficult to be taken seriously in any way, other than what I have mentioned, this uh, sort of show of force. What can you tell me about the elections in uh, Hakasia? I've, I've read that they're 
they're being described as kind of the most or maybe even the only possibly competitive or they maybe were going to be but it's possible that's it's maybe no longer the case like what's this do you know have you been tracking this what's the situation with these elections so yes yeah, so to understand the significance of the elections in Augustia, we have to briefly go back to 2018 when in like comparatively much more competitive domestic political circumstances than now the kremlin faced uh four surprising electoral upsets in that year's gubernatorial elections and um the, the most the most famous one, of course, was uh, Sergei Furgal in the Khabarovsk region, who has since been arrested and convicted, famously prompting a series of protests in the region. But in the other four regions, uh, sorry, the other three regions, the Kremlin tried to sort of annul or in in in, in any other way invalidate these results and. Um, in, in one region, the maritime territory, they were actually the election was actually invalidated, and new elections were held with new candidates. In uh, the Vladimir region, in European Russia, the newly elected governor, uh, Liberal Democrat uh, Sipyagin, was allowed to take office. But then, uh, after the 2021 Duma election, he was offered a uh, seat in the Duma, which he took. So the Kremlin could appoint a sort of a more appoint a, a united Russia governor in his stead. And the and Hakasia is the only region of the four where the communist governor who was elected in 2018, Valentin Konovalov, could not only take his office, but also remain in office throughout the term. And uh, that makes the position of this otherwise very small, you're talking about a couple of hundreds of thousands of voters, otherwise it's very small and uh, relatively poor region in Siberia, very interesting. What happened was that uh, the Kremlin, instead of simply dismissing Konovalov, which the president could do uh, under new legislation adopted in 2021, basically uh, simply by stating that Konovalov lost his uh, his confidence, he lost his support, he lost his trust. Instead of doing that, the Kremlin decided to run Sergei Sokol, a uh, Duma deputy who briefly participated in the war against him. And um, this made the campaign interesting because what happened was that Sokol tried to kind of play up his veteran credentials, which didn't work out very well for him, according to the very scarce public opinion service that we have access to from the region. Uh, While Konovalov tried to uh, sort of rally local elites around himself, and he portrayed uh, Sokol as a as an outsider, which is a, a very uh, historically been a an effective means of campaigning, uh, portraying uh, these uh, uh, sort of governors, uh, so called Varangian governors, whom uh, the Kremlin uh, sometimes sends to, very often sends to to regions to oversee the regions uh, without having links to the territories that they are governing. The campaign itself was very eventful and uh, it was full of, uh, well, let's say unorthodox means of campaigning, uh, including live pigs emblazoned with the emblems of Konovalov's Communist Party, for instance, or the governor. Is that bad? Pig, the pigs are bad, I take it. Yes, it was a negative. It was okay. a so, sort of chorni PR, uh-huh. as they call it. And you know you had you had the 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 usual struggle over uh, the so-called spoiler candidates. Uh, spoiler candidates are the uh, the kind of candidates that run with um, either the suspected or open support of the authorities against um, in order to split uh, opposition votes. Uh, there was uh, the story of, um, of of Konovalov sort of enlisting uh, one of uh, the main 
former United Russia, personalities in the region, uh, the uh, speaker of the regional parliament, and there, were de- there, was, there was a series of debates. And after these debates, uh, after um, uh, surveys reportedly still thought that there might be a second round, or, or even that Konovalov might win in the first round, so it was uncomfortably close. Sokol withdrew his candidacy last week, ostensibly because he was hospitalized with peritonitis. And I'm not going to say that this definitely happened on behest of the authorities or the Kremlin, but we need to note that Sokol had struggled with uh, this illness in the campaign before, and yet he chose this very late moment to withdraw his candidacy, which of course prompted speculations. And I think a very interesting takeaway from uh, what then happened was that uh, even though there was a scenario in which the elections themselves could have been called off, if the other two candidates, the other two kind of candidates who are running against uh, Konovalov, if they had withdrawn, then the elections could have been postponed by up to three months. And uh, Konovalov's mandate runs out in November. So technically, he could have been simply replaced with someone and new elections could have been held in December. But this didn't happen. And what happened instead is that uh, now the Liberal Democrat candidate uh, is portraying himself as the main opposition. And I think from the Kremlin's point of view, if we accept the the, the explanation that uh, they either tacitly or openly or actively approved Sokol's withdrawal, then this is to me a sign that that they did not want to even allow the remote possibility that uh, this election could become a kind of referendum on, on a war veteran and on the topic of a war veteran in an electoral campaign. Instead, they withdrew Sokol and let a much more safer person, the Liberal Democratic candidate, uh, battled it out with him, hoping that so-called voters will be will now be voting for the Liberal Democratic candidate, maybe, or focusing on the uh, region's legislative elections, which are also going to be held or are held this week, and uh, perhaps trying to build up a blocking majority against the governor. However, the two reasons why the elections were interesting to me were uh, even with the withdrawal of Sokol, is that um, is first that we have seen a genuinely competitive election in Russia in 2023, which itself is notable, and uh, also because it showcased potentially showcased how brittle this uh, sort of very rigid political system of political control is over Russia's domestic politics that the Kremlin seems to aspire to. Do you think that these these like little pockets? of semi or relatively more free and fair elections or more competitive elections. Is that something that exists by design so that the Kremlin can essentially experiment with with attitudes and sort of judge candidates and, and parties and so on? Or is it just that Russia's a big country and as authoritarian as the regime is, it just can't control everything? So first of all, yes, authoritarianism, even when it is hardening as it does in Russia, obviously such a vast country will leave pockets that uh, cannot be uh, supervised closely enough to, to guarantee uh, guarantee full control for the central government. And it's not for a lack of trying, because uh, over the past two or three years, the Kremlin has adopted a range of uh, both policies and laws that, uh, for instance, the 2021 public administration reform or the sort of the digitalization of a lot of uh, aspects of, the gov- of, of, of regional governance uh, on the level of the federal government that uh, were meant to sort of uh, reduce the risks of, uh, of, of grassroots political 
uh, competition or, po- or genuine political competition emerging in the regions. And in the case of uh, go- gubernatorial elections, as we as we see, uh, they have been fairly successful. So right now, uh, most of the political intrigue that we have seen over the past year, that we see now, it happens more or less on the level of cities or even lower levels uh, around local issues. And I think that's certainly a result of the, the Kremlin's political engineering. Okay, so staging elections in an authoritarian regime is tricky business. You've got spoiler candidates, political intrigue, and all manner of manipulations in varying degrees, types, and God knows what else. As the Kremlin's domestic policy team labors to manage Russian democracy, election observers do what they can to hold officials accountable. But what does it actually mean to monitor elections in these conditions? To find out, I spoke to Galina Selivanova, an election monitor and a social scientist from the University of Bonn. My first question for her was about the Golas movement, Russia's leading elections watchdog. So the first question I had was, what is the organization Golas? Like, when did it appear? Mm-hmm. What exactly does it do? And like, does it still do the same thing it did 10 years ago? Or has its role changed? Like, mm-hmm. what, what is Golas? Well, so Golas is very similar to other election monitoring organizations that appeared in the former Soviet Union states when these countries gained independence and uh, relatively competitive and multi-party elections started in these countries. Uh, Simultaneously, there were a lot of organizations, civil society organizations emerging in this uh, more or less free environment. And one of the type of organizations emerging in, uh, in FSU and in former Soviet Union countries were these election monitoring organizations. So similar ones are, for example, ISFET in Georgia, Promolex in Moldova, Ukraine has two, uh, Kavo and Apora. They're slightly different, but there are two election monitoring organizations. Essentially, these are, and Golas used to be initially such an organization, professional NGO that conducted independent oversight of electoral process. These organizations usually conduct this oversight following three sequential periods in electoral procedures. So the pre-electoral procedures, for example, registration of candidates, nomination, registration, political agitation, these things. Uh, Then they monitor uh, election day, so procedures that all procedures are followed on the election day, and they often monitor also the post-electoral phase, for example, whether candidates who were elected could actually assume those posts. So they are professional NGOs who usually collect expertise on elections. They collect information from domestic and international actors. And at the end of the day, they present their work through reports that are not directed at the general public. They're directed at stakeholders who participate somehow in electoral process. So now, well, we know that these organizations have the most productive work in hybrid regimes, so hybrid regimes that combine autocratic and democratic traces. And what is important is that uh, in such regimes, there are multi-party, there are relatively competitive elections, but they cannot be labeled free and fair. So these professionalized NGOs, they work to make these elections correspond to certain international standards to label them as free and fair. 
Golas started as such a professionalized NGO uh, in early 2000s, and for a very long time they worked as, as a professional NGO. Also, they continued working in this time, but they had to uh, respond to pressure that was exercised by the political regime in Russia that from hybrid regime returned so rolled back to autocracy, gained more and more autocratic features, and generally all civil society space was kind of shrinking. And Golos was not the only organization that was um, oppressed, that was affected by this change in political environment. But because elections are equally crucial to democratic and autocratic regimes, Golos was sort of on a very brink, on a very, very uh, spotlight in political process in Russia. And therefore, they were among the first ones to be labeled as foreign agents in Russia. They were among the first ones to get uh, smearing campaigns against them. So Golos was always kind of the first ones to, to be affected by the changes in the nature of political regime in Russia. I know that in the United States, a lot of the election monitoring is done by the people affiliated with the political parties. And obviously, that's how we got a lot of the Republicans who were unhappy with the last presidential election. Does Golas work with specifically with political parties or is this totally separate? You have political party affiliated election monitors and you have Golas or do they in intertwine at all? Well, again, going back to history originally, and it is the same way in many FSU states, uh, election monitoring organizations could appoint uh, election observers. So they can uh, appoint observers, write complaints, participate in wider decision-making and political process in terms of uh, changing electoral laws, suggesting amendments in electoral laws. In Russia, that was uh, the same. Initially, election monitoring organizations could appoint observers, but uh, this has changed and uh, there is general trend in Russia that the decreasing civil society space and also decreasing opportunities for election monitoring. So at some point, I can't give you the exact date, at some point there was uh, the law on election monitoring was amended and it's only political parties and candidates who can appoint election observers uh, to electoral commission to observe in electoral commission or territorial electoral commission. So more or less, it is the same way as in the US, but it doesn't mean that this changes the elimination of independent election monitoring organizations from this process was necessarily a democratizing or was necessarily an improvement. Essentially, but are there any parties or candidates who are willing to work with organizations like yes. Golas, e even to this day? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the point mm -hmm. is that organizations, what they can now do is they provide an infrastructure for election monitoring for average citizens. They uh, provide materials, they provide information, they teach them how to observe elections, they uh, have this hotline uh, during election day, for example, or even in the pre-electoral process uh, when people can call and report some violations, uh, for example, pressure on, uh, on uh, voters, such things. But these organizations, they cannot appoint uh, observers. Uh, therefore, they agree with different political parties to give a note to appoint these people who were educated by election monitoring organizations and sent them from political parties to monitor elections in every specific precinct. And more or less, this arrangement works the same way in 
any city with any election monitoring organization because Golos is not the single one, it's the biggest organization, but we certainly have more organizations that deal with election monitoring in Russia and they all work more or less in the same way. Uh, many of them refuse to work with United Russia and United Russia is also not very interested in working with independent observers. But at the same time, for political parties, this is also an advantageous situation because there is a bunch of people who already know how the electoral process works, how this um, the whole election day should uh, look like, and they just go there and get a piece of paper from, from the political party signed that day I pointed to that or another uh, precinct, and uh, therefore political parties kind of show presence of many supporters and uh, their presence on precincts and people get an opportunity to observe the electoral process. And does Golis still exist now? Because I yes. know that it's, it's you know, it was first designated as a foreign agent when it used to be a formal organization yeah. more than a decade ago. It was like one of the first. And then it became like a movement. And so what exactly do you know? Is, mm-hmm. it, is it a movement today still? Or what is its like designation as an entity? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't have a registered entity. They call themselves an association. So I would call them, as a social scientist, I call them social movement organization. There is some organizational core. They didn't lose their pool of experts, political scientists, legal scientists who worked with them before they were designated as a foreign agent. But at the same time, it is much looser, uh, less hierarchical structure that has chapters in different cities that work according to the political context in every specific city. So indeed, Golas exists and the chapters even grow. For example, we didn't have one in St. Petersburg, but we got one recently quite recently so it all uh it is a very even personalized story when there is an activist who is ready to conduct this work and of course this is all volunteering nobody is getting paid for this work so every everyone is uh, sort of an activist or participant of a social movement organization they work for free um so yeah indeed Golas exists but they just change their form to less traceable less organized less formalized network-like structure, which they call association, associatia golos. Right. And how significant do you think it is that last month police arrested and then jailed Golos co-chairman Georgi Milkanyans, like, and they, they raided, I think, the yeah. homes of like a dozen other people across the country in different regions. Is this, I would assume it will have some kind of chilling effect, but is this the end of Golos as we know it? Or is this just another, just the latest of like the crackdowns and members and, and, you know, affiliates, they just roll with the punches. Like, what, what do you expect to come of this? I do not think that this is an end of Golos. And Golos has 10 years of experience existing under increasing pressure in increasingly autocratic environments. So it's certainly not the end of Golos. Because it is a, a network, because it is an association of different chapters, the chapters adapt to local context rather than the federal pressure. A lot of Golas activists work from abroad, and given the current development of ICTs, we can certainly do lots of things and observe lots of things from abroad, uh, given that there are activists and informants uh, on the ground, of course. But nonetheless, this is certainly not the end of Golas. And uh, although it is very, very sad that uh, Grigory Mirkanians was arrested, I don't think that arresting one member, I'm, I don't want to give more. <laughs> <laughs> more um, ideas uh, to to the other side, but uh, I don't think arresting yeah, one. Who, who would you arrest? Who would who would you take <laughs> out to really behead no the organization? One, no one. Give me your never. give me the strategy. <laughs> 
nobody nobody okay. matters that's uh, that's yeah, yeah we'll put a pin in that yeah <laughs> no no one person matters uh but mm-hmm. um it's not the first time when golos representatives got arrested i want to remind you that we had the case of romano dot who maybe don't put it on, on the air no don't Put it, but there were other members of Golos who experienced this type of uh, persecution, this type of pressure before Grigory Melkanians. Of course, they didn't get such a severe punishment, but nonetheless, I think that arresting Melkanians, well, it might have some chilling effect, but not on very, very devoted and committed activists. Maybe some rank and file activists might think that they will skip this campaign or they will reconsider what kind of activities they participate in. But generally, I think that interest in election monitoring is growing in Russia and has been steadily growing over years as one of the uh, very limited opportunities for relatively safe, relatively uh, legal, well, it is a legal way of participating in politics and engaging with politics, political, ex- getting experience mm. of uh, collective action. So people have a lot of interest in election monitoring. And I don't think that's going to change. And what are some of the like the most common violations that Golas and other election monitors are flagging? Because I know that if you mention, if you even mention the concept of Russian election monitoring or just elections mm-hmm. to a lot of foreigners, they kind of look at you like, why does Putin even have elections? And obviously, it's a whole discussion as to why the regime needs the legitimacy of elections right. in the first place. But just as sort of a like practical question, what are the irregularities and the violations that are that, that are flagged? You've mentioned that there's there there's sort of three processes mm-hmm. to the monitoring. Like, what are what are people what are monitors flagging as like, oh, that's a uh, that's problematic right there. Mm-hmm. I wish I had an answer to this question. I, I I get this question a lot. And my first answer to this question is always Russia is a big country and it is a very diverse country. So election fraud, electoral fraud and electoral manipulations really very much depend on the region. I can proudly say as Siberian myself that in Siberia, people do not manipulate elections as much as they do in other regions, for example. So, for example, they, the level of electoral fraud on election day is very, very low in Siberian cities. And therefore, we can see some instances of opposition candidates winning and they win in more or less uh, fair elections. Protests against fraud in Russia's 2011 parliamentary elections brought international attention to shenanigans like so-called carousel voting, ballot stuffing, and other election day irregularities. Well, this stuff still happens. The main violations are before any ballots are cast, Silvanova told me. I think what is more important is maybe not even violations on election day. The more important type of violation is generally what we political scientists call skewed playing field. So it is uneven, yeah, the set of conditions that are not even for all candidates. This is one thing that incumbent candidates get more opportunities to present themselves. They get more, they get bigger budgets to, for agitation. They get more time on air. And at the same time, this cleaning, the, the, the wiping of any opposition from political, from the political context. So protests in 2019, uh, in 2019, for example, a lot of people protested not against electoral fraud because elections didn't happen yet. People protested against not registering candidates who wanted to run for municipal elections. We're not even talking about 
high-level nationwide campaign. We're talking about local municipal elections and authorities uh, didn't register any opposition candidates for those elections. So this uh, skewed playing field and uh, hand-picked candidates, so hand-picked sparing candidates for the incumbent, this is, I think, the biggest problem of Russian elections. And then the rest is just an additional kind of toolkit that helps incumbents win with more votes, getting more more votes than they would get initially with this very uninteresting election during this very uninteresting election campaign. The 2019 protests that Levanova mentions were summer demonstrations in Moscow in response to election officials refusing to register the candidacy of independent politicians in races for the city council. The city's police responded to the protests with surprising force, arresting more than 1,300 people, including several minors, on a single day in late July. City prosecutors then launched a massive investigation alleging rioting by demonstrators, and more than a dozen people were convicted in what became known as the Moscow case. I wanted to ask you one kind of last question or set of questions about basically Russians' attitudes toward voting and democracy and the concept of whether or not there is a there is a potential or an option to sort of cast a protest vote. So this is sort of a two-parter, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, one, what is your grasp of how Russians, average Russians, average people in Russia view the voting process itself? Like, is it viewed widely skeptically? Is it viewed as, like, this is a patriotic duty? I mean, I, this is obviously a really broad generalization, and I'm sure you could, just as an American, I know that I've, yeah, I run into people who are like, voting's for idiots versus how could you not vote? And so it's, maybe this is a dumb question. But then the other question is maybe less dumb, like, is there such a thing as a protest vote today in Russia? The first thing, how Russians view elections. Russians are just normal human beings and normal voters. And if a campaign is interesting, even if it's a local, super small municipal campaign, and it's interesting, competitive, and outcomes are not predetermined, then they will happily participate uh, not only in elections, but even in campaigning for or against the candidates that are competing. So in this sense, Russian attitudes towards election changes when the campaign gets more interesting. If there are no candidates, if there is a predetermined result, why would I waste Sunday morning, Sunday generally, my only weekend maybe, in going and voting at a precinct if I know that my vote, casting vote, doesn't change anything? And I don't think this is somehow specific or different in case of Russia. So I think what is more important is that there's growing interest towards election monitoring. And I even, I spoke to these activists who provide this infrastructure for election monitoring in St. Petersburg, for example, last year, the year when the full-scale invasion started, when nobody knew what is happening next, when oppression turned to the next level. And at the same time, lots of lots of activists mentioned that interest in election monitoring was growing. And there were so many more newcomers, first-time observers who wanted to control elections, who wanted to participate and engage and get this experience of monitoring even very, very small remote municipal campaigns. So I think Russians, if they get an opportunity to vote at interesting and somehow unpredictable elections, they can get very interested, they can get very engaged. Uh, They want to participate in electoral process beyond only voting, beyond only casting a ballot box, a ballot uh, sheet in the box. Uh, 
Uh, certainly, because the regime is getting more and more autocratic and, and uh, opportunities for participation are closing down, this might translate in apathy, in absenteeism, and uh, less interest in election campaign, because people don't know why to waste time, why do that, uh, and participate in these sham elections. A lot of people understand that elections are sham. This is more like a ritual rather than some meaningful political act. Indeed, there are some people who submit to this pressure. There is a lot of dependent electorate, so administratively dependent electorate, who uh, are guided to precincts by uh, their bosses, by their foremen. They just say, we cannot do anything else. We just do this. This is a duty to save our job place, uh, save our salaries, whatsoever. And the same with electoral fraud. This is why a lot of teachers commit electoral fraud and participate in this uh, manipulation, in this uh, electoral fraud business, because they want to save their um, their work, workplace. They are not so much committed to United Russia or Putin, per se. They just want to uh, continue working in those schools or, uh, I don't know, in other state-related institutions. This is probably how Russians view voting. In essays about the social contract at the heart of the Putin regime, analysts frequently argue that the Kremlin discourages ordinary people from participating actively in politics, especially elections. The old bargain, which maybe holds less true today than before, was that Putin offers stability in exchange for loyalty. By robbing elections of competition and rendering their outcome a foregone conclusion, the Kremlin also made voting a thoroughly boring process. I asked Andras about the authorities' current work nationwide in different regions when it comes to voting in terms of like all the elections including from the russian far east to the occupied regions of ukraine is there kind of like a, a single approach to the voting process or is it like wildly different the general approach to any election but that is not a presidential election in russia has been to sort of depress turnout in the sense that uh, make people uninterested in politics, depoliticized to sort of prevent grassroots um, grassroots uh, movements with a wide appeal from emerging. And at the same time, make sure that the quote unquote, the right people go and vote. How do you do that? Well, uh, you provide various incentives, sometimes coercive, sometimes positive incentives. Uh, coercive incentives include people being pressured through their companies, for instance, if they work for a state-owned company uh, or a big enough company in a region that the uh, authorities uh, sort of can use as a proxy. Or if you're a public official in any way depend on the state, then the state has means to, uh, to, to make sure that you turn out and vote and that you vote for the right party. Last question I had was, what do you think the potential is for protest voting in these upcoming elections? I know that Leonid Volkov, he just released smart vote recommendations for Yekaterinburg, and he they've changed the strategy a bit. It's no longer as strategic, I guess. It's no longer about picking the sort of second best candidate or the <laughs> best candidate that could beat the United Russia candidate. It's now anti-war candidates, essentially. And that, to me, suggests that capacity for protest voting has diminished because now, essentially, the, the pool of what's considered a protest vote is smaller. It used to be you could vote for anybody but United Russia, and you were, in, a, in, a, in essence, you were protesting. But now, with the war and with the fact that most of the, almost all, I mean, not almost all, but well, large, a lot of the political candidates are now, if not pro-war, then at least sort of neutral on it. And so, would you say that the, the opportunities for protest voting have, have diminished, or is it something else? 
the war itself as a as a as a topic is the elephant in the room right it's 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 been absent from the uh from the campaign as you cannot really talk about the war itself you can talk about other issues that the war that that have to do with the war without mentioning the war you can talk about inflation you can talk about uh, social problems you can talk about veterans and their families or or people who or men who fell in ukraine and uh, and 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 their families and and social aid to them so in such circumstances it is difficult to determine like it's difficult to speak about anti-war candidates because there are so few of them who are openly anti-war. I see the the, the sort of scope of, of of protest voting or the uh, the chances of protest voting diminished. Yes, uh, partly because uh, the authorities have successfully uh, successfully either chased away or jailed people who were organizing who were doing the uh, the really important organizing work on the level of uh, of, of the regions. There is very di- there's very few information available about uh, the the relative strength of candidates in regional elections now. And um, something that uh, Alexei Navalny's team also noted was that uh, were they to simply name candidates who are whom they call on their supporters to vote for as a means of protest voting, they would risk uh, that candidate being immediately taken off of the ballot with uh, some kind of excuse or even jailed in certain cases. And therefore, the the kind of protest voting that they have uh, suggested, namely uh, to return to the 2011 method, the, the 2011 method of just voting for any opposition candidate, and in in certain regions, like you know, in the Altai region, the Communist Party suggested the same thing. In Novosibirsk, uh, a local opposition um, alliance suggested the same thing. So I can see this having a significantly smaller effect it's uh, it will give some information about how big protest voting is but it will not lead to people getting elected or or it, 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 there's a smaller chance that that uh, non-united russia people or people who uh, would irk the authorities or who do not have a seat assigned to them as a token opposition deputy would be elected as it happened in earlier years simply because the votes will be, votes will be more split so in that sense, yes, uh, the, the chances of, uh, of making a huge difference through pr- protest voting in this particular election is diminished. Uh, protest vote. So voting itself, I don't think it is a very much a protest activity. I am now writing an article and I have very good evidence that shows that protest potential in regions in 2021, so before the war started, Protest potential and this Navalny, so the campaign Free Navalny, and how many people registered to protest during this campaign in early 2021 are directly translated into amount of votes that candidates recommended by Navalny's smart voting campaign received. So the higher protest potential, the higher percentage, the higher vote share for candidates recommended by Navalny, which is probably an obvious outcome of uh, two years study, but nonetheless, we have a very good mathematical proof uh, with uh, hardcore statistical modeling that this is actually the case. 
But at the same time, these uh, candidates, they didn't get elected in most cases because uh, authorities used a very sophisticated uh, toolkit of electoral manipulations to change electoral outcomes, to get more votes for incumbents. In Moscow, they introduced this elect uh, uh, electronic voting. So these different kinds of uh, manipulatory toolkit was applied. So uh, smart voting candidates didn't get elected. So I think protest is not about going and vote. This is a very useful activity. It can be even more useful when a lot of people show up at precincts and it's going to be harder to manipulate elections if a lot of people show up and cast their ballot sheet. But what is more important is to monitor elections, to participate in other type of activism and very often election monitoring activism translates in other type of activism. So I think this, this can be more of a protest activity, even if it is an individual activity under conditions of a severe oppression in uh, autocratic, very, very autocratic Russia now. Thanks for tuning in, folks. This has been The Naked Pravda, a podcast from Medusa in English. Remember that undesirable status back in Russia means our entire news outlet now relies on readers and listeners around the world to support our work. Please visit our website for information about how to become a contributor with one-time or recurring pledges. Thanks again. Until next week.